This episode is brought to you by Mightier. Mightier is a biofeedback-based video game platform that teaches kids to emotionally self-regulate. This leads to a significant reduction in meltdowns and parental stress. It's backed by science out of Harvard Medical and Boston Children's and has helped over 100,000 kids. For more information, visit theautismdad.com forward slash mightier. That's theautismdad.com forward slash M-I-G-H-T-I-E-R and use the code theautismdad22 to save 10%. Welcome to the Autism Dad Podcast. I'm Rob Gorski. This show is inspired by my own personal journey as a full-time single dad raising three autistic kids. It's all about special needs parenting, the challenges we face every single day, as well as some of the things we have to learn to navigate along the way. This season, we're going to put a major focus on empowering and educating parents. We're going to talk all about building a community of support around your family, the importance of self-care, as well as connecting with services and resources that are vital when it comes to raising a child with special needs. So be sure to check us out at listen.theautismdad.com, subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. On this week's episode of the Autism Dad Podcast, I take on a topic that has been on my podcast bucket list for the last couple of seasons, and I just, like, I haven't gotten to it yet because I didn't have the right person, and and I just kind of bounce around too much. But uh, it's a big one, right? And I'm really excited to share this with you guys. Uh, so we're going to talk about sensory eating today. And I have the perfect guest for this. Her name is Britton Coleman. You may know her as the autism dietitian on social media, but she is a registered dietitian who works specifically with autistic kids and sensory kids and their families to help them navigate these challenges at home. Britton and I have a really good conversation all about sensory eating. I have sensory eaters in my home. A lot of you probably already know that, but I also know that a lot of you out there have sensory eaters in your home. And there's so many things that we worry about as parents, you know, about a balanced diet or our kids are overweight or underweight or they're not eating enough or, you know, even things like the packaging on the chicken nuggets change and now our kids won't touch it. I mean, there's all these things that we struggle with as parents and Britain helps us to navigate this stuff. I thought that I had a firm grasp on what sensory eating was because I've been working with my kids forever. But I walked away from this conversation with a much better understanding of what my kids are experiencing. And that's helping me to be a better parent, helping me to be more empathetic and supportive. And I think in the long run, it's going to help uh, me to help my kids overcome some of these challenges that they're still dealing with, you know, even as they get older. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear this. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I really hope this helps. Enjoy the interview. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to come on a show. I really appreciate it. Could you take a minute and just kind of tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and kind of uh, what your connection is to the like autism and special needs community? Absolutely. So my name is Britton Coleman. I'm a registered dietitian and specialize in children on the autism spectrum. And um, my connection to autism, my brother's on the autism spectrum. So he's uh, he just turned 28. He's my little brother. And uh, he was diagnosed with autism at two. And so I've learned so much about him and the needs that he has in terms of his sensory needs and picky eating. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. Uh, but I, you know, I've of course had professional training for picky eating too, once I decided I wanted to go in this field, but that personal experience with my brother really has made such a difference uh, in terms of the way I serve my clients, because I feel like I understand them so much better than just some kind of curriculum, I am able to understand from that personal side. So, um, you know, I decided to become a dietitian and quickly after I decided to specialize in autism and, you know, started my own private practice called Autism Dietitian, super straightforward, and now serve families to help, uh, you know, parents expand their child's limited diet and help them get the nutrients they need so that they can feel their best. And that's really what I'm after is just to help kids feel better because when they can feel better, they can focus better. They can just do better in school and therapies and in life. And that's what I want for all of my clients. I I really, well, thank you for that, for, for one thing, but I, I, I really appreciate when you have a personal connection to, to something, uh, because a lot of times parents feel like it's very difficult to find people who can relate to, to what they're going through or, they don't really like conceptually you understand what like sensory eating is, but in real life you've never had to experience it. So you don't really fully like grasp it in that kind of um, that real life way. And, and I, and I think it's, I think it's amazing that 
you've gone down this path and, and that you're using your experience to help so many other families. So I, as, a, as a parent, I, I thank you for that. Thank you. Appreciate um, that. Yeah, there is so much you can't learn in a textbook. I mean, yeah. there's a lot you can't learn from a textbook. So being able, I mean, your experience, being able to learn so much about autism from a personal side, me as well. I mean, we have these different experiences with autism, but there's so much that, you know, it's not, no one's going to write about it. You know, you just, you know it. It's, it's like perspective and context, I think, that, yep. uh, that lacks when you don't have that personal uh, connection. So I, I just... It makes it, I think it makes a difference, especially when the people that you work with, right? They feel more comfortable and they know there's somebody there that, that gets it. So that's, that's really cool. Um, for people out there who don't maybe understand what a dietitian does, can we kind of talk briefly about what a dietitian does? Like what is your job? Yeah. So there are so many roles that a dietitian can fill and, First, I'll address a lot of people are like, well, what's the difference between a nutritionist and a dietitian? I could go into that, but I'll just briefly scrape the surface. Um, so, of course, there are programs out there where you, you graduate and you're some sort of nutritionist. But what a dietitian does that's different, we have a uh, coordinated program that we must go through. In the past, it kind of looked like nursing school where you do two hours or two, sorry, two years undergrad and then two years in like professional nutrition school. And then you sit for your board exams. Um, before you have to sit, you get your 1200 practice hours. So there's a lot of um, guidelines around it and a lot of regulations. Now you have to have your master's degree, which I do. Um, at the time, you didn't have to have your master's degree, but I went ahead and completed it. And to be a nutritionist, technically, Rob, like if you were interested in nutrition and you wanted to say, hey, I'm a nutritionist now and I'm practicing, you could. So it's kind of scary. Now, like I said, there are some people who do some kind of program, but if you're really wanting to work with a nutrition professional, I would recommend going with a dietitian because you know that they have that additional board certification and training and practice hours. There's just a lot of regulations around it. So um, okay. first things first, just going to say that because someone might be curious. I, I was actually going to ask that question. So we don't Incredible. have to do that now. We don't have to do that now. <laughs> Incredible. Um, yeah. So I'm a registered dietitian and, um, you know, dietitians can fill many roles. A lot of times you'll see dietitians working in the clinical setting, like in the hospital, you'll see them working at uh, schools, even um, implementing menus in school systems. Uh, you can see them working at uh, outpatient care for children with developmental disabilities. Maybe that's actually where I got my start. But um, as a private practice dietitian, now I'm really able to see, okay, what is the role that needs to be filled for children on the autism spectrum? Now, for me, I'm working on expanding children's diet. So I take a look at, okay, what are they already eating? Is that matching their nutrition needs? And if not, which is usually the case uh, when people are coming to me, how are we going to fill those gaps? One, I want to do it with diet, but I do also use nutrition supplements, but I use them as they're intended, like a supplementation to diet, because we don't want to use a nutrition supplement as, you know, this crutch where we're getting all of our nutrients from. We have to be working on diet at the same time. So that's a huge part of what I do for families, figure out what's missing. How are we going to tailor this to what your child needs? Like if they're only eating five foods, how are we going to expand from there in a methodical way that works for your child and their sensory needs, um, but also fill in their nutritional gaps? So that's how I work. There are many other roles that dietitians play, but that's how I support my families. Okay. You know, as, as you're describing what you do, uh, I'm kind of like in my head going back in time and, and thinking about the struggles I went through with my kids when they were little. And I can't even, we, we didn't have anything like this available to us. You know, it was, there, there was not this level of understanding 15 years ago, you know, and I think at least, at least available to me that I was aware of. And I'm so glad that you're here talking about this because I don't want anybody to go through that anymore. I don't want kids to have to struggle. I don't want parents to, I know what it's like to be scared because your kid's underweight and you cannot get them to eat or to have to battle that stigma of uh, whatever it is that you're feeding them is it is what it is because it's literally the only thing they'll eat. And having 
resources like this available, having people like you available to help is, is amazing. And I'm so glad that you're here talking about this because I know so many families out there are struggling and, uh, you know, now they know that there's, there's people out there who can help. So again, thank you for being here. So when you're working with families of autistic kids, like what are some of the common, I guess, challenges that you, you see parents facing when it comes to um, regulating nutrition, I, I guess, is kind of the big thing. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, most kids that I work with have some kind of sensory processing difficulty or sensory processing disorder. And just like you said, I mean, the tag on the back of your shirt, that is really overwhelming. My brother had an issue with um, the seams on his socks. Yep. So even oh, yeah. to this day, he'll wear them inside out. And I, My 17-year-old uh, was just, he has, they're, they're printed, but he just, he flips them inside out. I just noticed that again yesterday. That's funny yeah, that you said yeah. that. I mean, yeah, Barrett's 28 and he's still wearing inside out socks because it just helps him so much better. It doesn't matter the kind of sock. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, so even just that sensory experience, just that's just touch. That's one sensory like feeling that you're getting from the the socks, the shirt, whatever it might be. Now, eating is so sensory rich. You're not only touching the food, you're smelling it, you're tasting it, you're hearing like the crunch while you eat it, you're looking at it. There's all of your senses all at once firing. And so if we're thinking, okay, yeah, just a tag on the back of our shirt is overwhelming. Well, eating is incredibly overwhelming because it's everything all at once. And not only that, a lot of times if it's something new, you don't know what to expect. So it's now all of these new sensory experiences happening at once. And it's just so overwhelming and overstimulating for a lot of children that they just don't even want to do it. They're like, this is not something that brings me enjoyment. Food brings me enjoyment. I love eating. I love trying new things. And so a lot of people have that experience with food and just don't understand why won't my child eat? It's like, it's not, they don't want to. It's not something that's fun for them. Now, certain foods like packaged foods, fried foods, uh, processed foods, you know what to expect every time. And they have this awesome sensory profile. They're crunchy or really salty or sweet. And they know what to expect. And so they're like, yes, this brings me comfort, which food does bring comfort. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, I know uh, it brings me comfort too. So they're looking for something that is the same every single time that they know what to expect and is going to give them the sensory input that they need. And that, like I said, ends up being processed food, fried food, fast food, something that's going to always be recurring and very similar versus home cooked food is not going to be the same. You know, when you're, as you're, as you're talking about this, I'm, I'm going through all of these memories. Uh, and, and actually I, I never thought about it the way that you explained it, where, where you're kind of, when, when eating is sort of all of your sensory input at one time. And if a tag is overwhelming or socks are overwhelming, then imagine what eating is like. I never thought about it like that. Uh, my, my youngest was the kind of kid that it was like chicken nuggets, mac and cheese. And um, if we were lucky, sometimes he'd drink milk. Most of the time he wouldn't, you know, like, and and you, cou- you can't have misshapen nuggets or you can't have like any perceived imperfection or any perceived difference between what it was and what this one is, is, is like, it's like an insurmountable obstacle for him. Mm-hmm. And we were always told when he was little, like, well, he'll eat when he's hungry. And I'm like, Oh God, oh. do you understand? Like he will starve himself before like, he eats something. In my eye roll or like my side. It was, good. I, it was pretty good. Oh my gosh. When I hear that, it just, Oh, grinds my gears. So we'll get into that. I, but I have, I have, uh, analogized it. Analogize. Whatever. I, <laughs> When I, when, when people would tell me that I, I try to explain it to them because like, I don't have sensory issues like that. So I, I can only kind of relate it to what my experience has been through my son. And I would tell people like, you know, if you, if you think he'll eat when he's hungry, right. If you think like he's just a picky eater, then I want you to go down, you know, go to wherever if you have a cat, go to the litter box and how hungry would you have to be to eat whatever's in there? Because if you're hungry, you'll eat it, right? Like as as dramatic as that may seem, he is so averse 
to whatever is offensive about what's in front of him, that it's the same experience for him. I mean, he would rather starve than eat, you know, misshapen chicken nuggets. Just like you would rather starve before you would eat whatever's in the litter box. And that is how I kind of would relate it to people. And I think it's dramatic, but like, no, I, I, you not. would go days without eating, you yeah. know, if, if we, if we allowed that and, you know, he does a lot better now, uh, but it's a real problem. It's a very real problem. I am definitely going to use that analogy in the future Go because it. it's spot on. And I think people just don't understand that. And it's, there's so many just common picky eating tactics that I hear recommended all the time, which I on, I just think they're bad advice. Uh, anyway, I think that is one of them is especially bad advice for kids on the spectrum because they won't eat when they're hungry if it's not within their ability to eat it. Now that could be a sensory need, which I mean, sensory needs don't go away with hunger. In fact, they get worse. So if anyone's ever been hangry before, which um, I sure have, if the hangrier I get, I'm not going to want to start eating all these new foods. It's not going to get better. Um, So sensory issues do not resolve with hunger. Um, They're not just going to start eating and kids can end up in the ER with a severe nutrient deficiency or malnutrition. We have research articles that show us that even like case studies that these kids are showing up with scurvy to the ERs and doctors don't know what it is because they thought we don't have these kind of severity of nutrition deficiencies anymore, but in autism we can because they're not going to eat when they're hungry Um, or they're only eating like one or two foods. The other thing that doesn't resolve with hunger is like the physical ability to eat a food. Now, if a child has low muscle tone, which we see in a lot of kids on the spectrum, mm-hmm. if they can't physically eat that meat that you're giving them or whatever food it is. Like chewing chew, up the steak or something like that. Yeah. They can't do it. And that's not going to resolve with hunger either. And so that's just such bad advice. And I've had so many parents who are just desperate to get their child to eat anything and against their gut feeling of this doesn't feel like you know, something that would work, nothing's worked. So they're like, well, I guess I'll try it because they're just desperate to get their child to eat something. And I feel for them because it's so hard, but, um, that, and just take a bite. Those are two, uh, two recommendations of like the typical picky eating, uh, or you don't leave the table until you're done. Oh, or clean your plate. Oh, we can go back and forth. Yeah. But yeah. Yep. So can we, can we help people better understand the difference between, I don't know if there's an easy way to do this, but like, how can we help people understand the difference between picky eating and sensory eating? Cause like I, I was a picky eater when I was a kid. Uh, it wasn't sensory related. I was just, I, I was, I was like, I acknowledge I was difficult and I can still be really weird about things sometimes as an adult. But what's the difference between that and having real like sensory related aversions to, to foods and textures and stuff like that? Great question. So it is a developmental uh, stage to, to be a picky eater. So around 18 to 24 months, most kids will become more picky in the foods that they eat. They might've been eating everything when they were little and then 18, 24 months rolls around and now they have more autonomy. Um, they're able to verbalize, yuck, I'm not eating that. Um, but also our senses are developing. Things might feel different in their mouth. Um, even their jaws changing. So things can just feel really different. Now kids typically come out of that picky eating. I see that kids on the autism spectrum do not come out of that picky eating. So that's where everything starts. Almost every parent that I talk to, they're like, yes, his picky eating started around 18 to 24 months and it has not changed. It's only gotten worse. So, um, I mean, just to answer that first question, that's what I see in the difference where kids on the spectrum are not coming out of that picky eating stage. Um, now with sensory eating, if a child is on the autism spectrum, there likely is some kind of sensory processing issues that whether it's sensory processing disorder or not that are likely intertwined and so i see that most kids on the spectrum do have some sort of if they are a picky eater sensory issues are one of are the leading reason why they are selective now to tell the difference i mean like i said most of the kids i work with do have some sensory 
piece wrapped up in there. So it's easy for us to see, or the parents will recognize that. If I look at their diet, a lot of times I can say, hey, I see some patterns here. These are all crunchy foods, or these are all beige foods, which is really common. Mm -hmm. Um, And, or maybe these are all soft foods. We can start to see some kind of a pattern. If we don't see a pattern, maybe there's not, maybe that's not the main reason. But when I start to see major patterns in the taste, texture, temperature, those things, it starts, I start to think, okay, there's likely some kind of sensory piece to this or, or a motor issue. Like if they're only drinking something could be texture, but maybe they can't physically chew. So I also go there too. Um, now I will say there's this incredible, uh, approach to feeding, which I teach my families and I've been trained in, and it's called the SOS approach to feeding. And there are therapists across the world that use this type of feeding approach. You can actually go online to their website and there's a therapist finder and you can type in your zip code and find somebody near you that's been certified. But basically they use different criteria to diagnose, okay, this is a picky eater. It's just a typical picky eater, but then we have problem feeders and this is more severe. And a lot of times sensory issues are wrapped up in there. So they have all the criteria lined out. Um, I don't know all of it off the top of my head, mm-hmm. but you can absolutely go on their website and see the different. I actually have a blog post on it as well, um, but it involves like how many foods from each food group are they eating? Um, do they avoid one or more food groups? And it can help you kind of limit down. Is your child a picky eater or a problem feeder? And that's really helpful too. So if parents are not sure, um, that's a good place to kind of start getting your bearings around the criteria of both. So when you are dealing with, so the next one is, I guess, kind of a two-parter. So if you're dealing with a, a picky eater, right, how do you treat that versus um, treating uh, a kid with sensory issues? So there's two pieces. A lot of times, I mean, it can be behavioral, the reason that they're avoiding food. Like I said before, kids gain more autonomy. They can say, no, I'm not eating that. Yes, I am eating that. And, you know, it can be more wrapped up in behavior, but it could also be fully wrapped up in sensory. It could be a combination of the two. And so a lot of people will approach picky eating for a sensory eater with just behavior and say, you know, this is a behavioral issue, but it's really not. So we really have to dig a little bit deeper. Um, So different people will say different things. Most of my approach is going to be rooted in that sensory piece. And I find that even kids who are uh, picky eaters from solely a, a behavioral approach still benefit from that sensory approach because it's very gentle. We're not making them eat the food. We're not forcing them or begging them to eat this food. What we're doing is identifying foods that they currently like, that are comfortable to them, that feel safe. And we're gradually coming up with new ideas that are very similar to those foods and gradually branching out. That reduces the adrenaline, uh, the anxiety around those new foods and helps them take those gradual steps outward. So the approach that I use, I've you know been in my programs where the parents like, I don't know that it's majorly sensory related. That's few and far between for me, but um, they still benefit from that approach because it's a, a gentler approach. And with behavior, you know, strong behavior meets strong behavior, right? And so um, when we take that gentle approach, I often see that that is a you know successful route as well. Okay. Um, well, and that's, that's so true. Uh, you know, as as you're talking about this, I I keep going back in time, like with, with the things that worked or didn't work with my kids and forcing never worked. Right. So you don't do that, but it, it was trying to move from gradually move from like one thing to something else. And, uh, the other thing that I found that worked really well, especially as my youngest got older and he's 14 now, but was allowing them to take part in preparing stuff, right? Because yes. then they felt like he, he felt like he had more control over that. And then I think he became kind of naturally curious about what he was like, okay, well, I made this, like, what does it taste like? And, yes. and so he was more inclined to, I would say kind of venture 
out of his comfort zone when he had, when he took part in the preparation of, of that. And I mean, it's hard to do it with like younger kids and developmentally it's whatever. Right. But that, that really helped for us. And, and now he's, his career path at this point is culinary school. Like he's, he's had, he's been baking. He's had some of the stuff that he's baked go a couple of the, the cakes that he's baked have gone viral uh, on Facebook. And like, he's just, he's become this kind of uh food connoisseur, you know, and uh, so cool. it's kind of like a full circle, not full circle, but a 180, I guess yeah. in a way. Well, can I tell you why that works with kids? Please do. Like, getting involved with cooking. So, um, when, let's see. So the SOS approach to feeding, I'll, I just, I utilize it all the time because it's so awesome. Basically what they say is that there are 30 steps in between seeing a food for the first time and actually eating it. And they group them into like five or six different groups. So seeing a food, like tolerating it in your space next is interacting with it. And that might be like not physically touching it, but mixing it with a spoon or cutting it with like a cookie cutter or something like that. Smelling it, touching it, tasting it, all of those little steps. Now, what we do is we start at the bottom and we work our way up because if I'm saying, hey, Rob, you know, eat this caviar, like this completely new food that feel or octopus, something that feels really yucky to you. I'm like, just put it in your mouth. And you're like, whoa, yuck. Maybe. And maybe that's a bad example because I don't know that I would eat octopus either, but (laughs) um, (laughs) touching it, smelling it, taking those little steps up to eating it are going to make you feel more comfortable with the food. So getting kids involved with that food, you're encouraging them walking up that hierarchy to getting ready to eat it. You're making them more comfortable and they're able to break apart. You know, like I said, with eating, you're smelling it, tasting it, touching it, like uh, feeling it, smelling it all at once. When we take those little steps, we're able to, it's like building blocks. So we can at first see it, then we can smell it, then we can touch it. And you start building on top of one another to where eating isn't this huge, like all of a sudden explosion of all of these senses we've kind of built our way up to it. And so then it's less overwhelming when it happens. So that's why getting kids involved with the cooking process, even if they don't eat it at the end of it, you've made so much progress in getting them more comfortable with it. It takes a lot of time to learn to like something. So I often encourage people, um, eating is not our only goal. There's all these little goals in between. And if that means that it sat on your child's plate and he's never had it on his plate before, that's awesome. And you're making your way there. We just had to take it gradual steps at a time. So that's why that works. I, I had no idea why it worked. I, I kind of assumed it was a control thing. Like he had more control or more like input maybe, but that makes so much more sense because he's, he's touching it. He's feeling it. He's smelling it. He's seeing it before he ever has to even think about like tasting it or, or trying to eat it. And so you're kind of, uh, you're breaking, you're breaking things down kind of into tasks and, and Mm -hmm. he's voluntarily doing it rather than having it forced on him. That makes so much sense. I, I I didn't realize that's what it was. Yeah. And you're, I think you're totally right too. It's, he gets an input here. He is able to choose, you know, kind of have some control because when kids are given, this is what you're eating. There's no control in that. And so he is getting some of his input there as well. And one thing I meant to touch on, you had said, you know, with younger kids, you know, not being able to be involved, which can be true. I mean, there's, of course, like a um, some kids maybe way too little. But what we can also do is like hand over hand stirring. Like if it's a cookie batter or something, we can get them involved in the smallest ways. It could be you pour chocolate chips into a measuring cup and they pour it in hand over hand. So there are ways that we can get them involved. The older they get, the more we can involve them. Um, but even just doing something as small as that, they're like, ooh, I participated in making this and it feels less scary. I might be more likely to eat it. So um, just wanted to mention that. But I think that is a really good way to get kids involved and interested in food. I had, uh, this keeps bringing up all these memories. I, yeah. my, my youngest was, he was always underweight. Part of it was because he, I mean, he, he was so limited. His menu was like four items, which for a lot of families is a lot, right? I never really was able to kind of discern the rhyme or reason to, to what was like offensive to him. He can explain more about it now as he's older, 
but you know, food couldn't touch. So everything had to be like on separate plates. Um, and I remember we were out, he must've been like eight years old, maybe a little bit younger. Maybe he was like six years old and we were out at IHOP and I don't remember what he had ordered, but I, I explained to the waiter like, Hey, everything needs to be on separate plates. It's just better for everybody. <laughs> right. Let's yeah. just, let's just do this this way. And they didn't do it. They forgot. I mean, they were really cool about it at first, but it lost in translation somewhere. And so everything came out on one plate. And as, as I, as I saw them put it down, like I'm looking for the exit already. Like I'm thinking, Oh my God, this is not, this is not going to go well. Right. Like I can already envision the meltdown that we're going to have. I can, in, you know, envision having to explain to them, can we please take it back? They can't like, they can't touch, like they just can't touch. Uh, and then for the first time in, in his, you know, life, he just started to eat it. And I'm sitting, I, like, I have pictures and video of this happening because, like, I was so blown away. And I don't know what what triggered his ability to kind of make that that step, but he just, he just did. And, you know, he was kind of a unique kid because he was nonverbal till like, after his fourth birthday. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he kind of did life in his own pace, I think. But... I guess one of the things that I wanted to tell parents who are listening is don't give up hope. It'll happen, but it's, but it, it'll, it'll happen in its time, right? Like we can't force it. We can't, it's a goal that we have to work towards, but you got to just keep one day at a time, one meal at a time, one attempt at a time. And, and someday it's going to, it's going to click or they'll expand their menu to one other item or, or, they become more tolerant of certain things and it does get better. And oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, um, what can happen too is you just want your kid to eat. So you serve the same thing yeah. the exact way that they like it. And so sometimes the opportunities to try something new are limited because you're just trying to get your kid to eat. That's what it's rooted in. But that opportunity that arose, it was an accidental one. You're like, oh my gosh, wow, he's eating this. And kids totally surprise us sometimes, which is so exciting. You never know when it's going to happen. Um, but the fact that he had that opportunity helped him take one step forward. That's, actually, that's a lot of steps forward. It's a, it was and a lot so of steps forward. Like, yeah, that's huge. And so what I tell parents a lot of the time is we have to introduce opportunities, even the slightest ones, the smallest ones, to give them the opportunity to grow. Um, and it's hard to do that. And it's scary because you're like, oh, my child won't eat that. But sometimes we self-limit and say, oh, yeah. they won't do that. But then they do out, out of nowhere. So, you know, that's really cool that he did that. It's amazing. Thank you. I was totally amazed by it. And I uh, I always, whenever I remember that story, when, when we're talking about something like this, I always related to people because it was a moment that like showed me that like, oh my, like things, maybe things aren't going to always be this way. You know, maybe he'll be able to eat better or, or whatever. And then, and you had touched on something about sort of self-limiting because we, we become so accustomed to what they're able to do that that's what we provide for them. Right. And so we don't always maybe chat, not, not challenge, maybe is not the right word for it, but like provide opportunities for growth. Right. And, and one of the things that I wanted to point out was that I think parents get, um, they get judged a lot of times because they, you know, they, I had it happen with like school lunches when he was in grade school, uh, because we would pack certain things that we knew he would eat. If mm -hmm. we didn't, he wouldn't eat. And so right. in my view, it was like, okay, well, he's either, we, we can't have him not eating. He has to eat something to make it through the day. And if it means that it's not going to be something that like the school thinks is like healthy enough for him to have in his lunchbox, I can't tell you how many letters we got sent home about yeah. criticizing, oh. you know, what we chose to put in his lunchbox. And I'm just like, he's not going to eat. Like if we don't do this, he's not going to eat. And, and for the parents out there who are dealing with that and, and trying to kind of balance that, you know, not eating versus, okay, we're just going to go ahead and let him have mac and cheese again for, you know, every meal, because if we don't, he's not going to eat. I mean, that's a real struggle for parents. 
And it's not, it's not that they're bad parents. It's that they are desperately trying to make sure that their kids are taking something in. Do you see that? All the time. And that's what I say. It's parents are just doing the best they can and they just want their kids to eat. And I just feel that there's so limited guidance in this field with autism and picky eating that they just, they follow the traditional picky eating approaches like we talked about, um, where they just all of a sudden send a completely new lunch because they feel judged and then their kid doesn't eat at all. It's like, that doesn't work. And so I think there's definitely something to be said about those safe foods and kids having those safe foods available that they can eat. I never take away a child's safe food. In fact, at mealtimes, we only ever have one new thing and usually a very, very small amount. We always have their safe foods available. So it's, it's never going to be, well, I've never found it to be successful when we take away those safe foods, even if they're the most unhealthy foods you could ever imagine. Um, we're not going to take them away right away. We're going to, or ever, sometimes we transition them out. We add before we subtract. But yeah, it's so stressful for parents. I, I just feel for them so much because you're you're doing your best. Um, and you know, the typical picky eating approaches that are recommended are not, they're not made for your child. It's, it's, you're, you're setting yourself up to be unsuccessful, but the system is setting you up to be unsuccessful. So it's really hard. I know, I know what I was going to ask you now. Uh, I, I lost track of what I was going to say. Um, my youngest is, he's able to taste individual ingredients in foods is that is that so like he he can taste it like if they shift uh i always throw tyson under the bus because it was tyson chicken nuggets right forever and not only did they change the color of the bag or the design of the bag at one point which was like a nightmare for my family <laughs> for a long time but there must have been a change in the like the recipe that they were using or something because he could taste the difference between chicken nuggets from one bag and chicken up chicken nuggets from another bag and would only eat them out of one. Like I would, I would experiment with it. Like I'm going to mix them up. He could pick them out. Yeah. Not based on what they looked like, but how they tasted. And I, is that, is that, um, I mean, I assumed it was either he had a really good palate or it was sensory related. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do hear that. And it's, you know, it's so frustrating. Companies will never understand how frustrating a rebrand is oh. to, an autism parent. It's like, oh my goodness, don't change it from blue to green because my child will only eat the one in the blue package. Um, you know, it looks nice, but now we just lost a safe food because of the color on the package. Yeah. Um, so, or yeah, added garlic powder, like something that's so small that really makes a huge difference. Or they're so, not dinosaur shaped anymore. They're, yes. you know, zoo animals or something like. Exactly. Yes. So, I mean, those are things that I work with parents all the time of like, uh, you know, parents will be worried that their child will, um, you know, lose a safe food because it's a seasonal thing that they really mm. like. So we work on that, on how can we expand this for when it does go out of season so that we can have options. We don't lose an entire safe food. So there's definitely some strategy that we can introduce to that. And we want to have variety so that if something did happen, like a rebrand or, um, you know, an ingredient change or whatever it might be, that we're prepared and we know what to do and we have other options available. Because it's so scary when your child goes from five foods to four foods. Um, it's like, you know, it's terrifying. You just want to want them to get those nutrients, especially something that was so nutritious like chicken. Let's say that that was his only protein. And now I stopped eating chicken nuggets and we don't have any protein anymore. Yep. It's really scary. It is very scary. Yeah. So like I, I, you guys out there listening, like I can totally, I feel for you because I have lived that for many, many years. Uh, so I, I appreciate your, your input on that. Um, I wanted to ask you this, and then we have a couple of questions that uh, listeners had uh, sent in. Um, if parents, one of the things that I hear from parents all the time is that they're worried about like, vitamin deficiency. And I think you kind of touched on that at the beginning, but are there, you can't always, I mean, parents especially can't always tell just by looking at their kids, whether they're deficient in something, they just worry that, okay, they don't have a balanced diet, which is, yeah. it's, it's not even, 
I don't even, I don't use the word impossible very often because I think a lot of things are possible, but it's, I mean, it's pretty close to impossible for, to, to get a balanced diet into some of these kids for a variety of reasons. But if they're really worried about it and they want to talk to their pediatrician or whoever, are there specific labs that they could ask for or tests that could be run that can give them at least a baseline of where they are so that they can be like, okay, well, I'm not happy that their diet's this way, but they're, they're nutritionally doing like, okay, if that makes sense. Yes. So there are. Now I'll preface this saying, unfortunately, there are a lot of healthcare providers that are not well-versed in autism. And so they'll look at the chart and say, oh, your child's on the 50th percentile or 90th or whatever. They're fine. They're growing fine. No need for labs. And the parent's like, but they're eating five foods and it's chicken nuggets, French fries, chips, and applesauce. That was my brother's like four foods. Yep. And oh, and yogurt is what he would eat too. But, um, and you're like, there ha- there's no way they're getting the right nutrients. And they're like, oh, they're on the growth chart. It's fine. And it's so frustrating because you can be on the growth chart, but also have a nutrient deficiency. And I don't know if you've ever had one, Rob, but I've had an iron deficiency before. I've had vitamin D deficiency. It makes you feel really yucky. Mm-hmm. And for kids who can't explain that they're feeling that, you know, it's going to come out in behavior. It's going to come out in school and therapies, all these things. But they're on the growth chart. So, yes, you can ask for them. Uh, it totally depends on how supportive or knowledgeable your pediatrician or you know, practitioner is in autism, if they actually will order it for you. And I hate that that's the reality. Um, there are nutrients that you can check in on. Um, I, I actually utilize labs in my practice and I do small group coaching programs and people in my programs have the opportunity to order labs if they want to. So the ones that I recommend, there's a micronutrient panel has all your vitamins, all your minerals, your omegas, three, six, and nines, to check in on those because sometimes it's something unsuspecting, you know, maybe they have a vitamin A deficiency. Well, that's not a routine panel that we would run, uh, which actually there's this case study I was reading last week about this child who um, was only eating French fries. Yeah, I think that was it. And they were having severe eye issues and turned out they had a severe vitamin A deficiency, but it took the, their practitioner a long time to discover that because that's not standard. So I do that full micronutrient panel. Um, and you can do a food sensitivity report. You can look at the gut. So you do a stool sample, you send it in, you can see the bacteria in the gut inflammation, what's going on in there. Those are panels that I routinely run because I know that they're needed for my clients, but for somebody who is just maybe a general practitioner general pediatrician may not know hey, this is needed or could be helpful. So it might be hard to get those ordered. Um, I also order from specialized labs who that's what they do like exclusively. So sometimes those just routine or typical conventional labs aren't going to run a specialized panel like that. And it can really run up a bill. Um, I actually just got my vitamin D checked and my insurance came back and said, hey, we don't think this is necessary, which I'm like, most Americans in the US are deficient in vitamin D, Mm -hmm. but it was a $250 out of pocket charge where- I should have just ordered it myself on my own micronutrient panel and gotten all the rest of them tested for, you know, 250 altogether. So it's just frustrating sometimes. I kind of went on a tangent on that. But yes, there are many panels. Vitamin D and iron are really standard panels. Um, Like ferritin is storage iron, which is really helpful to get tested. Um, I could list off a whole number of things. Uh, B12, folate are really important nutrients that kids are often low in. Well, and I, and I guess the point too is that when you're dealing with things like autism, I mean, they're discovering all kinds of connections between a gut biome and mm-hmm. autism-related symptoms or behaviors. And, you know, kids aren't always able to express what they're experiencing. And so maybe there's a vitamin deficiency that's creating um, issues in one part of their life that is uncomfortable for them or you know, there's something else going on and some of these things are correctable. Yes. You can address the problem if you know what it is. Exactly. And not even like, they might not be able to communicate that they're feeling yucky. They also might not know that's not normal. That's a really good point. And it kind of reminds me like an analogy for that, I guess, to make it more relatable would be sort of like 
wearing glasses for the first time. Like you go your whole life not being able to see and you don't recognize that difference or that contrast until you actually put glasses on that are designed for you or, or prescribed for you. And then you can see the world in a whole different way. So it's kind of, you just don't recognize it for what it is until someone helps you to see that. That's a, that's a really good point. Uh, so were there any stories that you have kind of related to this that uh, kind of stick out in your mind of, of really kind of making a difference in, in somebody's life? Yeah, I, I always think, you know, especially we were just chatting a little bit about how kids might not know that they feel bad. When we corrected this one child's, uh, he had major gut issues going on. He had a lot of nutrient deficiencies. I mean, he had a really limited diet. It took time for us to expand his diet. It took time for us to resolve those gut issues. But when we did, he was an entirely different child. And his mom, she cried on one of our calls and said, I just don't think that he knew what it felt like to feel good. And that just always sticks with me because... One, he couldn't communicate that he was feeling poorly, but two, he might just not have known. He might have felt like that his whole life. And until he felt better, he couldn't. There's no contrast. Just, there's no contrast. He didn't know. And I think of that all the time because I think there are so many kids that just like they don't feel well and they've never felt well. Um, I'm going to like get emotional about it. Um, and when they do start feeling better, then they can finally see that contrast and they can finally start focusing better. They can finally start excelling in therapies because they just simply feel better. When you're miserable, that chews up your bandwidth and your resources. And when you can correct those issues or you're not experiencing whatever you're experiencing that's negative, that frees you up to, to do other things or to invest that energy and that ability in other areas of your life. So that, that's amazing. Totally. That's got to feel really good because that makes a big difference. Totally. Totally. And for anybody, it's yeah. like, you know, you don't have to be on the autism spectrum for nutrition to help you feel better. But man, it's like for kids who yeah are just feeling really poorly and can't communicate that. I mean, what a difference it makes. All right. So I want to, we are kind of on limited time. And so I want to kind of just grab one or two of these questions and then maybe we can do something down the road where we take on more questions. Um, so one of the questions was I thought was really interesting was how do I ensure that my daughter is hydrated when she doesn't like drinking water? Because I think it was kind of like they don't want her to have like Gatorade or you know what I mean to kind of whatever. How can we? Yeah, a lot of kids don't like drinking just plain water. There's a few things that you can you can do. So foods can provide hydration as well. So fruits and veggies they are going to have water content in them, uh, especially if raw, they're going to have more water content. Now, a lot of kids that are limited in the foods that they'll eat don't want to eat fruits and veggies. And um, so we can come up with other ideas. I mean, if they like uh, something that maybe is a little flavored, we could always put in a little splash of juice into some water. We could also put in um, maybe an electrolyte mix that they like. I always just keep an eye on the ingredients because some of them out there that look really healthy have all these random things in them that we don't want kids eating or drinking. Um, even I use what's called the rubber band trick, where if you have a clear water bottle, if you tell a child, hey, drink some water, it's going to be this like quick sip and put it down. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, I drink water. But what we can do is take a rubber band around that clear water bottle and say, drink to the band. And then they're like, okay, I have a clear idea of how much I'm supposed to drink. And it's a little bit more fun than just saying drink water. We drink that much water. Next time we move it down. So maybe you're keeping tabs on it of like, okay, by 11 a.m. this, or you know, before we leave for school, I want them to have drink this much water. When we get home, I want them to drink this much water. And it's an easy way for you to keep tabs and for them to understand the expectation. So I use that trick all the time. Um, but even getting like a fun water bottle or something that they can decorate or that it has Paw Patrol or something that they like on it can also help them buy into drinking water a little bit more and flavoring it on top of that can be helpful. Okay. Uh, that's a really good idea, actually. Um, the other questions, actually, we answered throughout the interview, so I don't think we need to take them on directly, but there's a mom who says that her nine-year-old nonverbal son was just diagnosed as being pre-diabetic and uh, eats a very limited menu, and she's trying to introduce more 
diabetic friendly foods and wants to know if there's any tips or tricks or what to kind of focus on. Yeah. So, you know, with prediabetes, we definitely want to focus on the amount of added sugar that is in foods and in most like quote unquote kid foods or processed foods are going to be a lot of sugar. So typically what I would do in that situation is help the mom find some, uh, alternatives that are similar to the foods he likes that have less sugar, higher quality oils in them as well. Just a higher quality option that might be similar to what he already likes. Transition over to those. Let's make some small transitions. Um, of course, ideally we'd love to overhaul the diet. Let's get in lots of fruits and veggies and whole grains, all these things that we know that can be beneficial to uh, prevent or, you know, uh, reduce likelihood of diabetes but it's gonna take time to get there. So I'd start with those small changes, especially if he's really limited mm -hmm. and gradually work our way out. Um, and you, I use this process called food chaining, which is finding similar foods and walking our way there. That's how it helps support them. So let's work with his nutritional needs, but take small steps to get there so that we don't you know, take out all of his safe foods. Too much change at one time, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. and I know that you're, you're pressed for time and, and you gotta get going. So. Really, I thank you for your time. How can people find you? Yeah, Instagram is a great place. Uh, so Autism Dietitian is where you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, all the places. If you type in Autism Dietitian, you'll probably find me there. You have a podcast too, right? I do, yeah. It's called Nourishing Autism. Um, so I took a, a slight break when my son was born in November and looking okay. to get back into that soon. Um, but there's lots of episodes already on, uh, okay. you know, Apple, Spotify. I did listen and, to it. It's really good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, but autism dietitian is also .com is a good place to find me. Um, I even have a membership site called autism nutrition library.com where families can hop on there. And if they want to explore you know, what do I need to know about multivitamins and autism? Or what do I need to know about dairy and autism? We have research-based information broken down into like an easy to understand way for parents to get that information without having to, you know, go down the Google rabbit hole yeah, of trying that's... to figure out what's right and wrong. Thank you very, very much. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. Real quick, before I let you go, I just want to say thank you for tuning in. I, I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoyed this episode, and it has a positive impact on your life, because that's what I'm aiming for here. As a reminder, you can visit listen.theautismdent.com. You can learn about me and anything related to the show. You can subscribe on any one of your favorite podcast listening apps so you never miss a new episode. And please take a moment and rate us on Apple Podcasts. There'll be a link in the show notes below for you just to click and it'll take you right there. It takes like 30 seconds and it makes a big difference. So it's a great way to support the show and uh, help keep the wheels turning. So have a great week and we'll talk soon.